0: welcome to the new books network i'm your host john emmerich with us today is professor gerald epstein author of the new book busting the bankers club finance for the rest of us welcome professor thanks very much for having me why don't you tell us a little bit about your background specifically how it led to this topic
1: and you writing this book so i teach economics at the university of massachusetts and i co-direct a research institute there called the political economy research institute which focuses on policy-relevant uh, research. And um, I've one of my areas has been finance and uh, central banking. And I was following the great financial crisis, the, the aspects leading up to it quite closely with a colleague of mine, Professor Jim Crotty. And uh, when the crisis hit, I pretty much knew, had, knew it was going to happen because my, my colleague Jim Crotty told me it was going to happen. He's usually right about these things. Uh, But I was really quite worried that the other progressive economists like myself weren't aware of these underlying dynamics and underlying problems and really weren't going to jump into the fray around financial reform that was going to happen. So I started an organization with a couple of colleagues uh, to try to help mobilize lawyers, uh, economists and others to work with groups in Washington like the American for Financial Reform who are trying to weigh in on the Dodd-Frank financial regulations. And uh, in that process, I realized two things. One, uh, the the banks and the big financial institutions have huge resources that they use to support their positions. But I also realized that there was a group of others that that were really trying to reform the system and had been working for quite a while. So this group that the banks organize, I call the Bankers Club, And the groups that that try to really create a financial system that works better for the rest of us, I call the clubbusters. And I decided to write this book to uh, explain these dynamics and also to try to unpack some of these complex aspects of finance and financial regulation so that uh, regular people in the street can understand it better.
0: And as they deserve to do. And it's a great book. And I'm going to selfishly take the opportunity that I have you on the phone Uh, to ask some questions that I've been wondering about uh, for the last 15 years because I was managing money through that crisis, trying to worry about a portfolio while simultaneously figuring out what the heck was going on and what happened. So let's start. The book itself will go through kind of an order and because it's also a chronology of history. um, Going back to the roaring 20s, not so stable. Stock market collapses into the Great Depression. There are fits and starts, a world war. And then we get this relatively long, stable period uh, in the context of economic history. The New Deal made specific and significant changes, not always equitable to the broad swath of the population in the U.S., as we'll we'll get into. But from a corporate perspective, from a banking and markets perspective, what are the big programs and institutions that came out of the New Deal and and why were they so important?
1: Right. So there were a number of, of policies that the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt were able to pass. Uh, to try to stabilize the financial system, number one, but also to create a financial system that would serve the, the real economy—you know, that would that would lend money to, to businesses, uh, to households, et cetera—and um, not primarily serve speculation as it had in, during the Roaring Twenties. So the first thing that, and probably the best, well-known uh, uh, reforms were the, the Glass—was the Glass-Steagall Act which separated investment from commercial banking, that is investment bank, and we think of JP Morgan, um, that was more speculative, uh, and um, uh, commercial banking, which runs the payment system, which gives, which takes deposits and, and provides banking services for businesses and households. So it separated those two, two uh, kinds of banking to make it uh, make sure that the core banking system, the commercial banks, was stable and, and when uh, collapse as a result of Ponzi schemes and other speculation uh, taken on by the investment banks. So the separation in the Glass-Steagall Act was one thing. A second thing that was really crucial was de- deposit insurance, um, insuring deposits in these commercial banks to reduce the runs on the banks that had caused so many thousands of banks to collapse in the, in the 1930s. And that's number two. But there's some other policies that were passed um, that are less well understood. One is the idea of creating a mission-guided approach to banking. That is, what the New Deal did was separated financial institutions into different segments and gave them, each segment, a different mission. So, for example, commercial banks to take deposits and lend to small to businesses and so forth, uh, insurance companies to, to take in... Uh, longer-term income and, and lend um, longer-term to municipalities, to uh, businesses, and so forth. Uh, investment banks to underwrite securities, et cetera. And so each of these segments of the financial system were not only separated from each other, and I'll I'll say a bit more about that in a minute, uh, but they all had missions. The idea being that they understood that banking and finance um, is a is a public franchise. Governments charter banks they regulate financial institutions so they create a situation with financial institutions can create can make profits but in return there's a quid pro quo uh they should um provide not only a private mission but also a social mission now the segmentation of, of finance in, during the new deal is interesting because on the one hand it created um, oligopolies and monopolies that is a, a re- limited competition that each of these financial institutions faced. And you we all think, well, that's bad. You know, Some kind of uh, um, limitation of competition is bad. But the New Dealers thought that this would stabilize the financial system if they didn't have to always be competing so much. They wouldn't always be trying to move out on the risk-return curve as much as possible. Uh, they could have a stable income. Some people called it 363 banking. Banks would Paid depositors 3%, they'd lend out at six percent, um, and they'd get to the golf golf course by by three in the afternoon. It was kind of a a, a low-key, sort of boring banking system, but it was stable and it did serve a social mission. And
0: and that's falls under an umbrella, I think, of a of a term that you use in the book, like what's the basic function of banking and where we may have uh lost our way. I'm gonna fast forward all the way through uh the 70s and um and Balker in the in the 80s and jump to the, the Clinton administration and, and Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin and Fed Chairman Greenspan. A couple of big bills that undo Glass steagall and more. One is, I think, Graham Bleach Bliley, and another big one involves the regulation of derivatives, the Commodities uh, Futures bill. Looked at together, in hindsight, a disaster waiting to happen, and it, it only took seven to eight years. Walk through those pieces of legislation. And there had to be, gosh, people that looked at that and said, you know, that had some historical perspective that were older and seasoned and said, this is a mistake. Or was everyone just caught up in the magic of, of Alan Greenspan. And uh, I'll get to the fact that like Bob Rubin during those days was referred to as the greatest treasury secretary since Alexander Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Um, walk us through the, that the late nineties and those pieces of legislation specifically, uh, those and it's we just talked about the, the, the things that they undid from um from the New Deal.
1: Right. So um you know the, the the biggest bankers, the ones that had been running the JP Morgan's and the Goldman Sachs and so forth, and certain Citibank, um earlier versions of that in Citibank, they were never happy with this New Deal system. Um they made decent profits to get to the golf course by three o'clock in the afternoon. But they really uh, couldn't get the mega profits that and mega incomes that they had all been used to in the in the Roaring Twenties and before that. So for, right from the very beginning, um, they wanted to try to undermine the system, and uh, that's where the Bankers Club came in. They they created allies uh, to help them do this, and little by little, piece by piece, they undermined the system, and that goes way back uh, to the nineteen sixties and seventies when. Um, the big banks, city banks, and others—they moved over, they moved operations overseas in the euro-dollar Euro market to try to get around uh, these regulations—and um, uh, started pushing the regulatory agencies uh, to free up their ability to use uh, de- more derivatives. They pushed for interstate banking rules uh, to allow them to, to bank uh, across across states. This was in, in the earlier. Uh, 90s um, and they had a kind of a full court press that is they pushed the regulatory agencies they pushed the legislature and they pushed uh, the the courts um, that that uh, that passed a number of rules there's an appendix in my book that goes through all, all of these um, that' that allowed them to do more and more with less and less regulation but as you said the crowning point um, was in the uh, 19 um, 1990s. Bill Clinton, a Democrat, um, which uh, really drank the Kool-Aid of Alan Greenspan and the others, who said uh, we have efficient markets. Talk about uh, financial theory, You know the efficient markets theory, um, that regulating um, finance actually uh, makes the financial system work less efficiently. It hurts not only profits, but the economy as a whole. Um, that was all taken in by the, uh, by Clinton and his team, and Robert Rubin, and so uh, the Federal Reserve played a really important role here. The Federal Reserve uh, took petitions from Citibank, which allowed them uh, to merge with um, with an insurance company, and uh, that was the camel the nose under the tent, and click uh, and the. Congress said, well, they're doing this anyway. The Fed is behind this. So let's pass legislation to make it all um, right and good and permanent. So that's when they passed the uh, the the uh, law to get rid of Glass-Steagall. And so then that brought about what the big banks had always wanted, a, a, their ability to move back to universal banking, where they could do everything under one roof and anywhere in the country, anywhere in the globe, underwrite right securities great derivatives, et cetera. a um, second uh, piece of legislation that was passed, um, the, the Modernization Act allowed uh, the selling of derivatives um, without any, uh, without, without any um, uh, regulations on them, basically. Uh, Brooksley Bourne, who had been the head of the, uh, the um, one of the regulatory agencies, had tried to stop this. But Rubin and the group um, did listen to her and pass this legislation so that there wouldn't be any regulation uh, on derivatives. Um, so what this basically did was create these universal banks that could do anything they want, pretty much. Uh, they were, got to be so big that, that uh, the regulators couldn't regulate them. So they decided to institute a policy of self-regulation. And they used complicated models, internal models, to try to convince the regulators that they were safe. Um, and so it was all a black box and self-regulation that we ended up with.
0: And, and in researching stuff around this book, I came up with a Wall Street Journal article from 2018 um, entitled "Bob Rubin's Legacy Up for Debate." Because um, you know it takes some time to see the effects of what these changes made, and, and he was a champion. I, I just bring that up to ask you to talk a little bit about the revolving door in bank regulation, because it, let's be honest, it's not just bank regulation. I I have a whole nother career in uh, in food and agriculture. And it's the same at the FDA, right? Um, you go from Monsanto to the head of the FDA and back to Monsanto. But to give some examples of, of that uh, revolving door because I think it's, it's discomforting at, at best.
1: Yeah, so um, you're right. The revolving, so there's a, a general concept in political science and, and political economy Call uh, capture theory. That is the idea that regulatory institutions uh, tend to be captured by the industries that they that they regulate. And this goes all the way back to uh, some economists at the University of Chicago, um, at, who who developed this theory in the 50s. Uh, they developed this theory to try to uh, criticize all regulatory agencies um, and to try so that we could get rid of regulatory agencies. But in fact, it's it's a little more nuanced than that. So it is true that there are many processes that uh, tend to make regulatory agencies operate in the interests of the industries they regulate. And the revolving door is a main one. The revolving door says uh, the regulatory agency, um, people who work there, they work there, they develop an expertise, and then they're able to go work for the regulated industry. At much higher salaries, and they offer benefits to uh, to the regulated uh, industry. They call back their friends, you know, in the regulatory agencies. You know, hey, you know, can you can can you give my company a break, etc. Um, and this is a very strong dynamic. It it affects all the regulatory agencies, um, including the Federal Reserve, which right. I call the chair the chairman of the club. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, for example, if you look at the number of the people, so, so look at for example. A Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, went bankrupt about a year ago, uh, in a couple of weeks. It would be the first year anniversary. And the president of Silicon Valley Bank was on the uh, board of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. It was the San Francisco Federal Reserve that was tasked with monitoring and supervising Silicon Valley Bank. And so almost, you see, right almost there, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, you see right there this kind of insidious um connection between the regulatory agencies and the regulators now i say this doesn't happen all the time i mean for example if you look at the sec right now and you look at gary gensler who um is really trying to regulate very stringently uh, crypto for example um you know he's definitely not in the pocket of the crypto industry so what uh, has to have a, a bit of a more nuanced view uh, about how this all works
0: right um There's a study you reference in the book that calculates the net benefit to society of what you call roaring banking, and it ends up being a negative number. Candidly, I'm glad the study exists, but I don't think I need to put pencil to paper. Again, having lived through it as a fund manager since 97 and an armchair economist, I look at the majority of Wall Street activity post-dismantling Glass-Steagall as adding no value to the street right it's uh, whether it's uh, prop trading or investment banking or which we, we were talking about fund management before i hit the record uh button uh it seems to in your almost entirely to senior executives and, and goldman sachs partners but uh, so talk about originate to distribute that study sx sx uh, excuse me excess income misallocation of resources and things like that, getting tracking or what we've just talked about this big picture, where we are as of you know, 1999
1: uh, back to what is it, what does it do for us? Yeah. So um, what we looked at is kind of a, 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 a satellite view of version of, of the financial uh, finance of the roaring banking economy and how that influ- influences the real economy. So we looked at three components. To try to understand whether it's a net benefit to our economy, the first uh, is um, a zero-sum component. That is, it's just if you think of the pie and you're breaking it up into the pieces, uh, the zero-sum part of it is um, who gets a big, who gets a bigger piece and who gets a smaller piece. And so we looked at um, the in excess profits and excess incomes that go uh, to, to the big finance industry, and um, we based it on a, a study by two economists, Philippon and Reshef, who said, okay, let's first look at uh, incomes of the bankers. Um, why are they so high? You know, incomes of bankers are about double they are in other, in the average industry in the, in the economy. Why are they so high? Well, you can imagine a number of reasons that are legitimate. You know, they work harder, they work longer, they're more skilled, uh, it's, more, it's riskier, so their, their incomes fluctuate more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of variables that one could account for that. And so what they did is they ran um, a number of of econometric regressions to control for all these variables, which could legitimately explain why their incomes might be higher. Um, And even controlling for all of that, they found that there was, uh, their incomes were significantly higher. And so what we did was take that residual, that rent, and we added it up among, um, uh, we, we added it up over, uh, ten years or so, and and found that um, the rents going to these these uh, bankers during that period, you know, three to four trillion dollars. Similarly, with profits, um, certainly banks need to make profits, uh, but um, they often don't uh, don't take into account the risk associated with the profits they make. Uh, so there have been a lot of studies which look. At um, what their profits ought to be if you adjust it for the real risk that they incur. Now, this is a this is a problem for the society because the reason they don't have to adjust their profits for the risk is because they often get bailed out by the Federal Reserve or the Treasury when when uh, things go go south. So uh, we we found that the study showed that the profits, the rate of returns, are about half of what they're reported. So we took about, you know, uh, one quarter of it. We didn't cut it down by a half, but we cut it down by a quarter and uh, added that in. So that's the, the, the rent part. That is the excess incomes and profits. The second is um, the misallocation of resources. And this is really how this roaring banking shrinks the pie. It doesn't re- just redistribute it, it shrinks it. Uh, there's an economics literature called too much banking. And it's looked at econometric studies of the size and uh, behavior of banking systems across the world and found that um, and this is very crude but it found that if uh, private credit as a share of gdp is about over about a hundred percent of gdp uh, you increase the size of the financial sector that actually lowers the rate of economic growth and in the us you know we're at about 160 percent of gdp And so we calculated, according using their econometric analysis, by how much that reduces um, our rate of economic growth. And we added that amount. We added it up over the period, and we added that in. Now, you might ask, why does that reduce the rate of economic growth? Well, there are uh, a couple of reasons, but most of the literature says it's because finance sucks in highly skilled, highly educated um, workers into finance, which... Uh, over and above their contribution to uh, to real ec- economic growth right. and where they could be doing more if they were real engineers or, and, and having other kinds of jobs. So we added that in. Finally, the other reason why big, unruly financial systems create problems for, for the economy as a whole is because of financial crises. So we added that in as well. And we came up um, with a, a sizable figure that the... the uh, that the roaring banking costs our economy, and you you got to
0: the heart of the matter. Now we're getting into the great financial crisis. When you talk about banks st- structured by the executives to profit the executives, and if things go south, there's someone there to pick up the pieces, which is the taxpayers. And that's you mentioned John Stewart in the book. It's a line that he always uses: it's privatization of profits and socialization of losses. You that's know. Right. Pretty, Pretty succinct way to describe what happened. So here, here's the the selfish part of um, my, my time with you. Um, a couple of questions. One of the most fascinating pieces of financial news video, if there is such a thing, and I'm a nerd in this area, so I found it fascinating. I call it the two bills, Bill Ackman, the hedge fund manager, and Bill Gross, the then bond king. Bill Ackman is in the CMB studios, and he's talking about his short Fannie Mae position. Bill Gross, who I think just got off a plane from Washington, D.C., landed back in Southern California, is buying those bonds. And the math that Ackman does is finance 101 irrefutable. You know, he's saying, look, if you have $100 of debt and the enterprise value is worth $75, the equity is worth zero and the debt has to take a haircut whatever that haircut is, 50%, you know, you do the math to figure out what a sustainable capital structure is going forward, okay? Bill Gross entertains the debate for about 30 seconds and then he just cuts him off. He says, I get paid to be right on the trade. I'm gonna be right on the trade. I don't know if it was hours or days later, it came out that the government was gonna pay off those bonds, you know, basically at hundred cents on the dollar. Now that's the bondholders didn't take a hit. So now we get to the great financial question, right? We have bankruptcy laws for restructuring. I used to do it as a, as a consultant in the early days with Pete Marwick. There was a similar crisis in the early 90s, if my memory serves, in Scandinavia generally, I think Sweden specifically, where they let, you know, they let, they made investors take the haircut, you know, turn the lights off on Friday at five o'clock, restructure the thing, bondholders, you're getting 50 cents of the dollar of your debt, but you own 100% of the equity. They turned the lights on on Monday and they didn't have that huge overhang of debt from paying everybody off and growth returned to normal in a fraction of the time that we experienced here after the great financial crisis, which was you know, 10 years of, of sluggishness. So the question is, because now you've talked about, you've already given us the background on the setup for the great financial crisis to happen, uh, dismantling Glass uh, Glass Steagall and uh, the the commodities futures uh, bill. Um, now let's go talk about what could we have done to fix it. And before we get to Dodd Frank, you know why did we buy off? And I know Fannie Mae and Freddie are different entities, and they're they're tied to the 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 health of the housing market, but AIG okay and those bonds that got paid off 100 cents of the dollar all of, i think the majority holder was goldman sachs partnership like why did we do that was there another way uh to come out of there because now you talk about misallocation of resources you know during the obama administration i was thinking you know 500 billion dollars to Uh, upgrade the electricity grid, the smart grid. We're all talking about it. Well, that money went away. That opportunity and opportunities like it went away because all those financial resources went to fixing this problem in a way that I don't, I think was overdone. That is a long winded uh, kind of explanation of what's been obsessing me since 2008, but I selfishly love your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, You know, I, in, in a shorthand uh when i t- when i teach my students about this um and i'll go into more, a bit more detail in a minute but the, the shorthand thing i say to my students is look even if it, at that time they needed to bail out the banks they didn't need to bail out the bankers that is there's no you know if you need to have an infrastructure of of, of banking which you do makes the the payment system works and that protects households and businesses deposits and so forth you know sure you need that that's that's what our financial system needs but you didn't need to be bail out all of these creditors um, all the bondholders um the the top officials of, of these banks that that took the money and and ran i mean look what the obama administration did with regard to general motors general motors was going Bankrupt or around the same time, and the Obama administration gave them a lifeline. What did they demand in return? Well, first of all, they demanded they um, sack their their top officials, put in new management. They demanded um, uh, haircuts from the uh, and, and support yep. from the labor unions and so yep. forth and other kinds of changes. What did they demand from the banks? Zippo, nothing, nothing zero. And um, I think that has Nothing to do with the stability of the banking system and the financial system and everything to do with the cozy relationships between Robert Rubin and and Tim Geithner and um, all of these people and and the bankers themselves. Um, They were scared. Obama was scared. He didn't really know anything about this. He didn't understand it. He he put his total faith in in these guys, including Bernanke, uh, head of the Fed. So what could they have done? Exactly what you said. They could have paid off. Um, uh, you know, they could have taken all of these bondholders and the uh, um, AIG and all of them to take a major cut. Uh, if they needed, if that led, led to um, a run on the banking system, well, they could have dealt with that some other way through. And we've, through we just did it. We just guaranteed everybody's deposits, unlimited, yeah. right? So so they could have done that. I mean, I, there's that. creates a whole other problem, but they could have done that. So they could have really shifted the whole the whole uh, distribution of, of the impact of this. Um, and instead, they bailed out the banks and we could get into this later if you want. But I think that had a very toxic impact on the politics of what we've seen since then. I mean, if you trace the the, the Tea Party came right out of that and and that morphed into other things that we're thinking now. So I think there was so much anger about that and that it just did not have to happen that way.
0: And I wrote down this question you've kind of gotten into already, which is, you know, what does the term bailout mean? It just gets thrown around and it's used very generally. Are you bailing out companies? Are you bailing out bondholders? Are you bailing out uh, management? And I actually had the question further down my list about what happened with the the auto industry. And um, um, I, I think they also had a repayment plan. Like, I think the government got some of that money back.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, they, uh, they they did
0: so is there a number specific to the great financial crisis where you know the ins and outs to find out how much just from that how much kind of permanent loss of um the nation's equity if you will was spent without again where you you and i are in agreement without any um incremental return benefit to society i am I'm, I'm losing the, the 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 thread here but um how much money just you know disappeared into the into the the banks and the bondholders and the management team um just from the gfc has a net like for instance we said like with the auto guys they got over time if you looked and you did the debits and credits and the inflows and outflows you're like it worked out it was a it was a, a a fair deal all around and i think society probably was well served but do, is that analysis been done for the for wall street and the gfc alone
1: yeah, so um, the net issue is, is interesting and, and difficult, okay? So let me first talk about gross, and then we can talk about net. So uh, some economists at the Levy Institute uh, went through it in great detail. This was a long time ago, 10, 15 years ago, and came up with a figure of twenty. that uh, bailout gross was about $27 trillion or $29 trillion, something like that. Now, if you talk to Fed officials and Treasury officials, they say, well, but, but it was all paid back. The thing is, though, um, uh, if you think about the rate of return that the government demanded on these bailouts, uh, it was very, you know, they had to pay back a number of these things. It was a tiny, it was a very low rate of return. It wasn't a risk adjusted rate of return. And the government and the society bore tremendous risk in doing this. Right. Um, And so uh, the net figures that I have seen, if you take into account what was repaid and, and so forth, with an appropriate discount rate and all that, it, it, um, it comes more to like $12 trillion, something like that. But it's, there's always going to be a debate about the net because it depends on, on what you think the counterfactual was and, and what the, the real cost of this bailout should have been uh, to, to the people who got it. Um, so I, I think anywhere from 12 to $27 trillion is the answer.
0: Yeah, and that's that's what I was just going to say. Whether it's twelve or twenty seven, it's a it's a staggering sum of money when you look at uh, the bickering over um, uh, costs that would benefit the bottom half of uh, the country economically. Uh, it's insane. You know, Churchill said never let a crisis go to waste, but we did. I already referred to kind of the the opportunity to have green the economy. Now we've waited fifteen years, precious years. We don't get back to start that. We got Dodd Frank. But there's a difference I now know from reading your book, I didn't really understand between a bill and the rulemaking. And other than the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I know you were a fan of, what happened to Dodd-Frank? And it it doesn't seem like it really fixed the institutional problems that led to the great financial crisis, but I'll I'll let you pass judgment.
1: That's right. Well, uh, it didn't. And for a number of reasons. First of all, as we've been talking about Obama and and Geithner and, and Larry Summers and, and Rubin and so forth, uh, their goal was not to fundamentally, they did not want to fundamentally restructure the financial system. They did not want to reinstitute uh, a, a modern Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, they didn't want to uh, put a cap on the size of the banks or break them up. They wanted to let them remain too big to fail. Um, they didn't want to really... Uh, regulate the whole financial system, including hedge funds and and all of all of these. They didn't want to make executives pay back their ill-gotten gains with clawbacks and and so forth. They wanted to allow them to continue to take the money and run. What they just wanted to do was was get the banking system um, back to the point where it was running again, where people would have confidence in it, and where it could. Uh, Pretty much continued to do what it was doing. the The one uh, strong internal law that they were good, that they did pass, but didn't really implement, um, was uh, the Volcker rule. Paul Volcker, the previous, the earlier head of the Fed, um, really was very critical of all these financial speculation of the and of the big banks. Even though he was a hawk on inflation, he really didn't like this freewheeling, roaring banking. And the Volcker Rule was designed to uh, reduce the prop- proprietary trading of, of banks um, that was so speculative and, and got them into so much trouble. Obama reluctantly agreed to put that in, but um, but it never went anywhere. Okay, so they, they really just never intended to do much structurally with the banks. But what they did do, the few things, uh, it was they were just... A broad outline of rule. Then they set up this situation where these things, these broad outlines had to be written into particular regulations and, retic- and particular rules. So they created this you know, 10-year rulemaking process. And this was done because the banks knew that after the Obama signed the, the law, that the the bank, the clubbusters, for the most part, you know, the people who were trying to, to make sure this was done correctly. Uh, they would lose funding. They'd kind of fade a bit into the background, um, and the bankers themselves, the bankers' club, would have free reign on the rulemaking process. And so they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that these rules, like, were what I say, Swiss cheese. I mean, they had so many holes right, in them. Right. Right. Um, that it, it, the, the, and then when the Trump administration came in, they weakened them even further. So uh, unfortunately, now we see that once again, when there's a major financial crisis, uh, that we have major financial crises, potentially like after the COVID pandemic was, was announced in March of 2020, the global financial system almost melted down again. We had the Silicon Valley Bank last year and others. So it wasn't fixed at all, um, partly because the Obama administration didn't really intend to fix it, and partly because the little bit they did try to put in uh, was wiped away by the rulemaking process done by the, uh, uh, from the efforts of the bank, bankers club.
0: Yeah, and always under the guise of, uh, we need experts. So these are experts. Uh, expertise is going to fix it. And it's the revolving, it's, it's not even a revolving
1: door. It was just direct uh, handover of yeah. control. This thing about expertise though is is such an important part of what I try to write about in, in the book because it, the question is, what, what, um, what, 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 is expertise expertise for whom i mean if you look for example at some at some of the uh regulators that president biden has tried to appoint so for example to who uh had the occ the up of the controller of the currency um he nominated somebody named Salah Omarova, who's a law professor at cornell who uh, worked um you know in the in the treasury for a while who's expert absolute expert on finance and financial regulation um but the uh the republicans on the committee joined by a couple of the democrats uh on the senate banking committee uh they forced her to withdraw um they accused her of being a communist because uh, uh, she's from, from originally from kazakhstan yeah um but no she's a top expert they just didn't want that kind of expertise right and so the same thing um, with Sarah Bloom Raskin, also was nominated for a top position. Uh, she had worked in the Treasury Department and the White House, a so top expert. Um, she was um, canceled out as well. She's an expert. They didn't want that kind of expertise. So right. expertise is really just a cover for people who are going to weigh in on their side. Yeah, that was a, a shameful uh,
0: part of the the story, listening to how they were railroaded out of contention for important uh, positions. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what's going on now. I think people would find your views interesting because monetary policy looms so large. We've had a very long um, um, expansion. Powell is, everyone hangs on his every word, when is easing gonna start, Uh, if it's gonna start. Has the, do you think the playbook for central banking, now we're getting to just the monetary policy piece, changed over the last 20 years. I did an interview with a professor in the UK, Jonathan Haskell, about his two books on calls, the rise of the intangible economy and how it's changed the way we measure productivity. We think about interest rate management and managing the economy. Um, you know, we had a, an historically fast rise in interest rates out of the fed and not a ton happened. He crushed houses. He wanted to crush housing prices. I guess when you talk about, you know, what, uh, but, he all he did was kill the new home market at a time when we have three plus million household shortfall, not an overhang like in, in 2008. Counterproductive, if you ask me, because homeowners equivalent rent is a pretty sticky component of the headline inflation number uh, we see right now. Has the monetary piece of Fed activity changed? Like, the, are we using a playbook from the 70s that doesn't work quite as well as it it may have?
1: You know, that's a that's a really fascinating question, and um, I don't think anybody really completely understands what happened uh, in this last episode. I know that I was predicting that the rapid increase in interest rates was going to cause some serious problems, maybe even a recession. And most of my uh, colleagues were predicting the same thing. And obviously, (laughs) uh, it hasn't happened yet. And um, the question is, you know, is there something fundamentally different now than was going on before? and uh, which makes monetary policy less effective in this way. And there may be for sure. I mean, with all the innovations in finance, the uh, huge uh, credit flows around the globe um, that are outside the the banking system and so forth, certainly uh, suggests that the financial markets are harder and harder to control uh, through the standard tools of, of monetary policy. I will point out though, Uh, um, since I'm uh, a bit on the older side here. And I remember in um, the 1970s and 1980s uh, when there was a discussion about the Fed losing control over the financial markets and that the only way they could cause a a slowdown was by creating a credit crunch. And Albert Wojenlauer, I don't know if you ever came across that name, um, an investment banker in New York, wrote a number of really, Uh, interesting pieces on uh, how monetary policy really works. It's not through um, just raising interest rates, but there actually has to be some credit rationing going on somewhere in the system to just cut off credit uh, to key users. Uh, Because when you raise interest rates, they can often just raise that in prices and and recapture it. Pass it on. Yeah. So, so, um, but I think the problem with the recent episode uh, is also that um, the, the federal reserve, mistook a demand-side inflation problem for um, what was really a supply-side shock. Side yep. shock. And central banks are have never been really well-designed to deal with supply-side shocks. And so what they do is they they see a supply-side shock. They don't um, want to implement the tools that they have to deal with the supply-side shock. And I can get back to that in a minute. And so they implement uh, a de, a hot, you know demand side policy raising interest rates and so forth, which typically would create major problems for the economy um, and so forth, but isn't really dealing with the, the fundamental problem. So uh, when there are really serious supply side shocks, the central bank, I believe, has to develop tools uh, to um, to uh, limit the price increases in the sectors that uh, are are uh, having problems, but support increased supply in those sectors at at the same time. And unfortunately, central banks really aren't, can't do this by themselves. Central banks have to coordinate with governments that are trying to deal with supply-side shocks. Now, this runs really into a very strong controversy uh, about the role of so-called central bank independence. That is, what does that mean? Is that something that's a good thing to have the way it's structured now? Or should central banks really cooperate more with governments that are trying to deal with these stickier uh, economic problems like supply side inflation or making a transition to a fossil free energy system and so forth? Do we need central banks to be more cooperative with governments in trying to solve these big problems? And this is something I talk about in my book, but I know it's quite uh, controversial.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I'm gonna. I, I joke all the time that like, I follow as many former economists who are now strategists. I say if you ask three of them what their favorite inflation metric is to follow, you wouldn't get three different answers. You'd get nine. You know, PCE, ah. CPI, core mean, trim mean, and then of course it's inf- influenced by all these human interventions like homeowners equivalent rent and hedonics and technology and quality. You know, I I just. It seems almost a fantasy that um, you know. And then, what's magical about two percent? You know, this this target and and uh, the headlines drive me nuts. You know, if there's a avian flu, and you know, fifty million chickens get killed, and egg prices triple, they in, they invoke like, what, is the Fed supposed to do something? Like seriously, is supposed to raise rates because of <laughs> right. that? It's insanity. But I want to yeah. get to the the chapter that shares the name of the book, "Busting the Bankers Club." And and get you talking about uh, what we need to do and how realistic you think it is. You know, you start with three objectives, and the first one: reduce frequency and severity of financial crises. Um, I mean, you tell me. We already had Dodd Frank. What 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 can be done? What should be done? And and what's the prospects of of things changing unless one party with an interest in doing so uh, controls basically uh, all three? Pieces of of government.
1: Well, so yeah, let's talk about financial uh, stability and and financial regulation. Uh, In some ways, I think that's the easiest piece because I I have three components: one, more financial and better financial regulation. Number one. Number two, more publicly oriented financial institutions, public banks, and uh, and 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 more uh, mission guided financial finance. That's number two. And number three. To help make any of this happen, we need to uh, protect our democracy writ large. Um, of, of these three different components, and I have a chapter on each of them in, in, in the end of my book, financial regulation really is the easiest because that's something that we're used to talking about. That's something the government is used to doing. They have fumbled it, um, but it's in it's it's a, a language that uh, regulatory agencies, co- Congress people, uh, and bankers and economists understand. So let's just take one simple example, capital con, uh, capital regulation. I mean, that's something that's on the table right now. They're trying to uh, in, uh, increase and make more uniform, uh, stricter capital regulation for, for banks. Uh, from the, This is a part of the Basel approach to capital regulation and so forth. And um, that's a no brainer. I mean, uh, we, we have to make the banks uh, hold more equity uh, on their balance sheet so that if things go south then they're the ones who are put at risk and it's not a panacea it's not the to end all but they're fighting this tooth and nail Um, but i do think there are that uh, the the central banks members of some members of congress um are really and people in the treasury are supporting capital regulation because that's that seems like a, a a basic form of Creating more financial uh, stability, so I'm, I'm kind of hopeful about that side. But that's not enough. We also need um, a more um, leverage rule, and the reason we need that is because uh, the value of capital on a bank's balance sheet is very procyclical. When the economy is booming, you know the equity prices of banks go up, and so the value of capital goes up. Uh, so banks feel like they can lend more. So they lend more into the boom or invest more into the boom when it goes down the opposite. Whereas if you have leverage requirements that are really about the amount of debt that the bank is, is taking on, that can be less uh, pro And I think that has to be increased. And I guess that's something that was part of Dodd-Frank. There were some increased leverage rules. But um, what happened was they put those in just for the very biggest banks Under under the Trump administration. They lowered it down the minimum size for banks. And, and and that's how Silicon Valley Bank got under that leverage rule and the capital rule. Um, so they need to lower it again because these mid-sized banks like Silicon Valley Bank was need that kind of regulation. So those are two things. A third thing though, so, and this is gonna be harder, but I think people are recognizing this at the Fed and elsewhere. You need to have an umbrella that has all of financial markets and institutions under some form of monitoring and regulation. You know, the Fed says we have to keep bailing out the whole financial system. We at least have to know what's going on there and have some regulations. So, again, that's something that I think um, is uh, is likely to happen. Uh, breaking up the banks, it's not on the table. It's not going to happen. Putting them down to size, not on the table. So that's where I'm more pessimistic. But I think we can make the banking system safer.
0: Yeah, you talked about leverage. And before, again, before I hit record, I, I was making jokes at, at the expense of um, defining risk in the public equity markets as, as short-term price volatility. Leverage is a great measure, uh, has a great impact anyway on risk. And I can tell you my work is a in the 40-act oversight world. It dro- I, I still don't think they the, the SEC has the right concept around how options are used and what they represent in terms of notional value. You know, you can have a thousand dollars of of options that represent ten or fifty or hundred thousand dollars of notional value of securities, and that's leverage. Uh, let's get into um, what finance does to inequality in the United States and how we address it. I I didn't realize that the big banks participate somewhat in what you call fringe finance, and I certainly didn't realize um, uh, the extent of it, but um, feel free to to talk because it it, it it presents itself frequently in the book i know it's important to you it's important to me it should be important to everybody because that's the majority of the country um doesn't exist but you know it's the majority of the countries between manhattan and san francisco uh so talk talk a little bit about um uh equity in financial services
1: yeah so th- I use the term in my book, you know, finance is an engine of inequality and roaring banking is an engine of inequality in our country these days. Um, There are a number of different ways in which that's true. But focusing, you know, the high salaries of uh, the CEOs and the top management that is uh, um, subsidized by government bailouts on a regular basis. uh, So that's one that's one area. But another area is just lacking um, financial services, lacking to failing to provide financial services to so many uh, communities uh, communities of color um in certain neighborhoods and so forth which then force these uh these communities to use fringe banking you know um day they day, day lenders, lenders and pawn brokers cash and cash checkers uh, and, yeah. cash checkers and all that yeah. where the fees are just just outrageous and um what what we found is that the, the the big banks the core banks um sometimes are are connected to some of these fringe lenders so they're making you know money on the side side there. Uh, but um, there's a huge number of underbanked in our in our society. And uh, there are communities that can't get small business loans, that can't get uh, an investment into the communities. And that's what the Community Reinvestment Act was for. The Community Reinvestment Act was passed um, in in the, the 1970s uh, to try to encourage banks, force banks that wanted to merge or had some other kind of um, uh, needed some some regulatory forbearance, uh, they were forced to lend more to these to these communities, small businesses, and so forth, and that had a positive impact. Now this was um, diluted over the years, but recently uh, a new Community Reinvestment Act was passed uh, under in the Biden administration, and so well, this is an example of a government regulation that is uh, incentivizing pushing. Uh, the financial institutions to do more for uh, uh, the, um, the the poor communities, the communities of color, and so forth. Uh, and there ought to be also, but to move further into this mission-guided finance, public finance that I was talking about before, we ought to really have something like Fed accounts, free accounts um, that anybody can have at the Federal Reserve um, um, or we could have a revive the postal banking system. You know, the United States used to have a postal banking system until around 1964. There are postal banking systems all over Europe, uh, where uh, households can have uh, low-cost or free banking accounts, um, subsidized by the government, uh, and payment services and so forth subsidized by the government, or low-cost or free. And in order to to make Finance more of an engine of equal opportunity, more of an engine of um, level playing field, and less an engine of of inequality. Um, but I also argue that we need more mission oriented finance. So examples of that include public banking. Uh, there's a bunch of public banking groups around the country. North Dakota is create... one, right? You mentioned yeah, in the book. So, so there is a public bank. There actually have we actually have two. <laughs> one is in North Dakota. Which was started in 1919, um, but uh, during the populist, uh, uh, it was an era. outgrowth of the populist era of the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. Um, and there's actually one that was passed more recently in Guam, of all places. So, <laughs> but anyway, and the the Bank of North Dakota operates on what's called the partnership banking model. It doesn't le- take deposits directly from households. It doesn't lend directly to businesses. It lends through um, banking institutions like community banks and, and, and small banks and so forth who then on-lend these cheaper funds uh, to to businesses and households. It's a good model. And that's what they're trying to do in California, in, in Massachusetts, in Colorado, um, are trying to promote these partnership banking, public banking models. I think what, what, what numbs my mind
0: in listening to the last couple of stories you've told is the fixes don't require you To be a visionary like the pieces have all existed throughout history, whether you talk about the Postal Service, where you talk about what's going on in North Dakota, whether I talk about Sweden, um, you talk about 363 and another time we'll talk about, uh, you know, other what other countries have all this already in place. You know, I've, I've, I've heard people joke that being a banker in Germany is like running a utility, you know, it's very simple. And some of that could be cultural, which is another book. Uh, but the, the, it all, it has existed at some point in time. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a visionary. Um, I'm going to, two more questions. Uh, one, because I'm, I'm hoping more than just economic nerds like me, uh, read this book and listen to the podcast Uh, this is about movie reviews. You referenced margin call a few times in the book. Uh, Why do you like that movie so much? What did it get right? Is it better than uh, the big short? You know, what, what's, why did you bring it up so much?
1: I talked about movies probably because I've been teaching this class to my students called finance and society. And I always have them uh, watch movies about finance. And um, first of all, I asked them to come up with, I'm dying to get some movies that, that have a favorable portrayal of bankers. And can't really come up with them. Uh, the the one they come up with is um, it's a wonderful life, but that's you know from 1946. Um, but my favorite is Margin Call because I want my students and I and I think it's important for everybody to grapple with the moral dilemmas. You know what's right, what's wrong. It's not just about maximizing profit. And you see these people in in, in Margin Call, these bankers, knowing that. If they uh, just sell all this, this, these toxic assets to their customers, that's wrong. They yeah. know that's wrong. Right. And some of them are actually grappling. Sh- what, what am I going to do? And in the end, um, they all end up doing it. And, right. and that doesn't mean they're bad people. But I just wanted my students to really understand that there are these moral dilemmas and that individuals can make moral choices about whether they want to be a part of this system or not. You know, one last thought. The it, uh, another correlation to my
0: my work many years ago in, in food and agriculture. We have a term in that world called a food desert, which is very similar to what you described in the lack of um, basic banking services within certain geographic and, and ethnic communities. It's 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 the same thing. There are people. And communities that don't have a decent grocery store to buy healthy food, they're they're shopping at the at the gas station on the on the corner. So, Professor, this has been wonderful. What didn't we talk about that you'd like readers to contemplate, think about, and know about, uh, be- before we sign off for the day, something I should have asked but didn't?
1: No, you asked great questions. All I would say is, if people are interested in in uh, becoming a uh, finding out more about the clubbusters, the people who are trying to reform our system. Um, Go to uh, Americans for Financial Reform, AFR, um, or Better Markets, or look out to see if there's a public banking or, uh, operation in your state or your locale. Um, there's lots of different ways to to get involved. Um, and uh, I think it, the more people we have that are really trying to reform the system, the more likely it is that we, that we might get someplace. So uh, join the clubbusters, I guess, is my message that's a great
0: point. Uh, You know, people should look up who uh, Dennis Kelleher is, what AFR does and uh, learn about better markets and and things like that. So professor, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you
1: so much.